Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Tonight, if you're with us this evening in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just flag them and get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hands tonight. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. We pick things up in uh, chapter 24, verse 32, and just the reminder that this is a continuation of Jesus' Olivet Discourse uh, given uh, to the disciples on uh, the night before his crucifixion and uh, the second longest of his uh, recorded teachings for us in the Scriptures. And uh, it was in response, this sermon was, to a couple of questions that the disciples asked of him as he prophesied the coming destruction of the temple. In verse uh, 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And so Jesus has spoken to them, as we've seen, of the birth pangs that will precede the tribulation period, the seven-year period of judgment, God's judgment upon the earth, and then with a specific look at what will characterize the first three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation, and then a specific look at what will mark the set last three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation, including the abomination that causes desolation. And then he followed all of it by speaking of uh, the glory of his return, the majesty of it, and now in verse uh, 32, he continues by saying, now learn this parable from the fig tree. And so the fig tree is a parable. It speaks something. And when its branch has already become tendered, it starts to put forth leaves and always a fig tree, as is the case with most trees of that kind. Uh, when it begins to put that new growth out, we know that spring is here, and it means that summer is right around the corner. And Jesus said in the same way, when you see all of these things, and that is all of these uh, things that he's spoken about here, including the abomination of desolation, speaking here principally to the Jews, not to the church, then uh, when you see these things, know that it and it is what he's just been referring to, and that is his second coming. Know that it is near and even at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, well, I, I love my new King James translation, but the one thing I wish they hadn't changed from the old King James was the verily, verily. I do miss my verily, verilies. They have a bigger impact on me than assuredly. I don't know why. Um, it's personal. So, verily, verily, that gets my attention, Jesus is saying here, I say to you, it's enough for him to be speaking to get my attention. When he adds a verily, verily, then he's not wanting me to miss the point, even if I'm in a spiritual stupor. Verily, verily, I say to you, this generation, the generation that sees everything that has happened, including the abomination of desolation, shall by no means pass until all these things take place right through to Jesus' second coming, and then he puts his, uh, you know, stamp of, of approval on all that he's taught when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, and it will. Uh, it looks sure, as sure as the ancient temple, but it's not sure. The one thing that's sure in the world is the Word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means 
pass away. So all of this is going to come to pass as inconceivable as it might have seemed to Christians or to the world at various times in the last 2,000 years or it might seem in the future. Jesus declares that assuredly as there is no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem tonight, as he prophesied would occur and did occur in 70 A.D., everything else is going to occur uh, just as he has uh, said that it would. Now, all of this then raises the question, we've got a happy ending to uh, human history, and that is Jesus' second coming related to um, the tribulation period. And so then the question becomes now, how are we supposed to live practically as Christians in the light of the fact that all of this is going to happen and this is the end that history is marching toward? And Jesus begins to uh, speak about that and the fact that we should be watchful as a church and as the body of Christ for the rapture uh, of the church that is going to then mark the onset of this uh, tribulation period. And so he says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We know he can't be talking about the second coming here because Daniel in Daniel chapter 12 declares that from the time that the abomination of desolation occurs until the coming of Messiah the Prince shall be 1,290 days. He's got to be talking about something that can't be measured by man. So he's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about the rapture uh, of the church here. But know that that day and hour, no one knows the imminence of that event could happen at any time. Uh, even the angels in heaven don't know, but my Father only. He warns that as the, but as the days of Noah were, so also will, shall be the coming uh, of the Son of Man be. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of the Son of Man it will be. And so Jesus here affirms uh, the account concerning Noah in the Old Testament. He affirms not a regional flood, but a worldwide flood and, uh, and, and the veracity of the truthfulness of the Old Testament uh, account. And so he says, in the last days, it's going to be like the times of Noah and, uh, and that it's going, this rapture is going to catch the world as a whole, uh, as completely by surprise as did uh, the flood at the time of Noah. Even though Noah spent a hundred years building that ark, and, and the Bible said that as he built that ark, as God had called him to do so, he was in essence preaching a sermon. He was preaching a sermon that judgment is coming. And it was an unprecedented judgment because up to that point in the history of the world, uh, there had never been rain. The Bible teaches that at that particular point in terms of uh, climate and so forth, there was just a, a mist that on a daily basis watered the earth and so forth. Everything changed after the flood, but there had never been any rain. So here is Noah talking about a flood. He's building an ark in preparation for it. God has told him, yeah, you know, how many Noahs does it take to screw on a light bulb? I'm telling you. I mean, they must have been telling jokes about him, a little screwy out there with his family, getting ready for something that's so improbable. And then sometimes we can be looked at the same way concerning the fact that Jesus is going to come, as he has said, 
and he is going to remove us before this time of judgment. And just as he uh, removed Noah and then uh, those that believed in his family uh, from the ark. It's interesting that the days of Noah, they were horrible times. Is it awful? It was the reason that God brought judgment on the earth. And the condition of man morally on the earth became so bad that God, in speaking, kind of meditating with himself, he regretted that he had even created man. So there's a lot that goes on in the mind and the heart of God that, you know, you read about in the Bible, but trying to get into his head a little bit and understand and so forth, all we know that is that what he was seeing was so far from what he intended, and it broke his heart absolutely broke his heart. And he realized that the only thing that can set back the level of wickedness that they're engaged in now is to almost erase the entire marker board and start all over again. It was a time that was known, as the Bible tells us, it was a time of great wickedness, great moral depravity, uh, heterosexual sexual immorality rampant, homosexual sexual immorality rampant. It was a time of tremendous violence. Evil was being called good. Good was being called uh, evil. All of the things that we're seeing that uh, is increasingly characterizing the world that we live in today. What fascinates me about Jesus recounting this concerning Noah and, and the thing that, that seems to get him here is the idea that at the time of the Noah's flood that people were just eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. In other words, they were just going on in the middle of unprecedented wickedness with the idea that God will never judge this. We can do whatever we want. There is no God. If there was a God, we don't care. And what's he going to do about it? And that God isn't going to judge. And that was the attitude of the people at the time of Noah. We will do what we want, and, and we will, uh, in the midst of our wickedness and depravity, we'll go on about our business, we'll eat, we'll drink, we'll marry, we'll give in marriage, just as if time will just go on endlessly, and God can never be provoked to a place where he will then judge mankind. And, uh, but that was the attitude that there was then, and I think increasingly we see that's the attitude of the world today and increasingly in our own country. The idea that uh, we can sin, sin against God's Word, we can sin against God's heart, against God's creation, against God's intent for our lives, for the world. Remember, we're renting here. This doesn't belong to us. We are stewards of this world and this universe. It isn't ours. It belongs to Him. And this idea that we can do whatever we want and God will never step in and judge it. That was the attitude of the population of the world when God did step in and judge at the time of Noah. And it's very much increasingly the attitude of the world today. I don't believe in God. I don't believe he'll ever judge. We can do whatever we want and it won't matter. And, uh, and then one day, as that ark is there, the animals have gone into the ark. Noah has gone in with his family, and there they are eating and drinking, maybe in a sidewalk cafe somewhere. And suddenly, somewhere on the face of the earth, somebody felt the first drop of rain, the first drop of rain in human history. And except for eight people, it took the whole world by surprise. And God's judgment was poured out. And God is saying that 
this judgment that will begin with the rapture of the church is going to catch the world by surprise, but it shouldn't catch us by surprise. When it happens, then two men will be in the field. I like this blue-collar work. Here we are in an ag area. We know about the field. You have two people. Uh, you, who's one from the other or whatever? One will be taken and the other will be left. And based solely upon whether a person has put their faith in Jesus and is a part of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ will be taken. Here there will be two people, and one will be taken, the other one will be uh, left. I remember when I was working for the phone company as a splicer, this new guy, he w I was teaching him how to splice and uh, kind of an apprentice on things. And, and I would share with him, just talk with him about the Lord and the rapture and different things like that. It was talking about end times and rapture in those days was everybody was talking about it. It was the Jesus movement, and, and this was uh, the vocabulary uh, of the day. And I remember he went off over to do something, and we were sending a tone from one end of the cable to the other or whatever, and then I lost phone contact with him. This was when you had to have like a hard landline, you know, through the cables, and nobody even knew what a cell phone was. And uh, hardly, so we had walkie-talkies. But the, um, I had to go into a building to take care of something that was going on. He came back to the manhole, and I was gone. And he thought the rapture occurred. <laughs> so he came back out, and we had continued the conversation that was going on. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And so he says, watch therefore, this is to us as Christians, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But if we're watching and waiting continually, we don't have to need, know the, the uh, day or the hour. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. And therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And uh, so, in the same way that if you have a house, somebody gives you a tip that a burglar is going to come, burglarize your house at a certain time, well, what are you going to do? You're going to be sitting at home watching and waiting for the moment that that's, uh, uh, that's going to happen. And if you and I would do that with a tip in order to be watching and waiting and ready for someone to burglarize our house, um, how much more important uh, is it for a Christian to be waiting for something far more significant, and that is the um, return of Jesus at the rapture of the church. And so who then is a faithful? So we should be watching, he tells us, verse 42, and then his coming should catch us being faithful as Christians. Who then is a faithful and a wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing, assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. And so the rapture of the church should catch us as Christians being faithful in our walk with the Lord. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, characteristics of a faithful servant and a great employee is that they work just as hard when the boss is gone 
is when the boss is present. And uh, I think all of us have worked in places where there are people that work very hard when the boss is there, and the second the boss is gone, uh, they're wasting away in Margaritaville or something, you know. I mean, they just uh, can't get any kind of work out of them. And then there's the other person that wa- works no matter what. They're being faithful to the boss. Their individual character is such that they don't need a boss present to be faithful. And so this is what uh, should characterize uh, us as Christians is that when he comes back, that he finds us working because he doesn't have to be looking over our shoulder for us to be busy about what he's called us to do as Christians. He will come and find us in that place. That's the faithful servant. But if, the, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. He's not coming back for a long time, and I, we're not going to see him anytime soon. And, and he begins to uh, beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. And then it'll catch him by surprise and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and uh, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the importance here of the rapture of the church, not uh, catching any of us uh, by surprise or to catch us in a backslidden state or living a life uh, of, of compromise. And so here's the Christian or the person that professes to be a Christian, and they don't believe that Jesus is returning, and so they live down to the level of the sin of the world all around them, and then the rapture catches them in a, in a backslidden state, living a life of uh, hypocrisy. And, uh, and uh, we can safely say, uh, I don't know all of the ins and outs, even after all these years of studying it and walking with the Lord. doesn't mean I'm real smart, but I have looked into a lot of, of these things in depth. In verse 51, you know, I don't know exactly what's uh, being said there, but uh, I do know that concerning that servant, uh, they'll live to uh, greatly regret uh, that choice of, of being uh, backslidden or far from the Lord or living a life of hypocrisy at the time of the rapture of the church. And so the passage just asks us a very, very important question tonight as Christians concerning the rapture of the church and Jesus' return for the church. Are we watching and waiting? Are we watching and waiting? One of the things that I really don't like um, about uh, the current state of Christianity in the United States of America predominantly is that in terms of a difference from uh, what it was emphasizing when I became a Christian and what it's doing now is the concern for eschatology, the study of end times, a knowledge concerning the last days, a knowledge concerning the rapture, an, a, an awareness of Christians that he is coming back, um, that, in, that has a sanctifying influence in our lives as Christians because when he comes back, we want to find uh, him to find us in a good place. And uh, I, I happen to think any influence for holiness in an unholy world for us as Christians is significant and it's, it's helpful. And so this influence is good. But in the last, I would say the last 10 years for sure, maybe a little bit longer, there's been a pull away from the study of end times, the study of eschatology, the rapture. What the church is doing now uh, more and more is forget about all of that stuff. 
uh, let's do good and be good. Let's be missional in whatever place God has put us in the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's very, very important, but it's a two-pronged thing, and we don't have to choose between the two. We can be missional. We can be influential for God and for good in any environment He has us working in or anywhere we are, any time of the day or of the night, but it doesn't mean that we should be ignorant about prophecy and, and about the return of uh, of the Lord. And so the importance of this, of being watching and waiting and asking ourselves tonight, um, are we being faithful to God's calling upon our lives? If He were to come tonight, would He catch us in a place where we're being a faithful servant uh, to what He's called us to do? Or would we in the privacy of our own heart know that He would catch us in a backslidden state, though even in church? but in a backslidden state or very far from what it is that he's called us to do for him and also called us uh, to be. And so tonight the passage really speaks to us, and um, there's no need to have anybody raise their hand or anything uh, like that. But is there anything in our lives that needs to change tonight between us and God in order for us to be Christians as the Bible declares we are to be, and that is to be watching and waiting for His return, expectant and excited about His return, and then also be found faithful if He were to return at any moment. And then if that isn't the case, then to change whatever needs to be changed for that to be a characteristic of our lives. One of the things that I like about these passages, and I happen to love end times, I happen to love the doctrine of the rapture and so forth because I got saved in a, and got going with the Lord in a Calvary Chapel in 1980 in Napa, California. And uh, the Jesus movement, the broader Jesus movement, had already been going on for a significant block of time, a number of years by the time I got saved. But I was born into, born again into a revival of the Jesus movement. And there was a tremendous focus upon the Lord's return, and it was a very healthy influence upon all of our lives. And so it holds with me, and I've been waiting for, uh, I can't do the math here at the top of my head, but a long, long time waiting for His return, and that influence has been a very, very good one. It also teaches us, and I think it's important, is, is that the Christianity that Jesus describes here, it's robust. It's strong. It's living. It's got some power to it. It isn't getting pushed around by the world. It's got an ability to influence the world uh, around us. And I think that sometimes we can allow, and it's just the problem of the frog and the proverbial uh, pot of boiling water. It just happens so slowly over such a long period of time. If we didn't have the Word of God to to be a standard for our relationship with Him and watching and waiting and being ready, it would be easy for all of us just to slip right down into lukewarmness, uh, to slip right down into a serviceless Christianity and, and so forth, uh, rather than this robust, dynamic, strong, expectant Christianity that Jesus describes from His own lips here. 
chapter uh, 25. Now remember, there's no chapter break in the sermon. I don't know that they had an intermission in the sermon. Jesus was just uh, teaching, but it breaks it up a little bit. Otherwise, it'd be a really long chapter without it being chapter 24 and 25. And Jesus then uh, basically gives in this particular chapter two parables and then some revelation concerning what's going to happen at his second coming. Um, at this point, it's good to be reminded of a couple things concerning parables. And the word parable comes from two words, para and balo. Para means alongside. Balo means to throw. It means to throw alongside. That's what a parable is. And what Jesus did in the parables is he took something physical that everyone could recognize from their daily life. Everybody understood it and then would take that physical something and then throw it alongside a spiritual truth that he was trying to convey to them that was harder to understand in order to give them uh, something to see clearly what it was that he was saying. And so that's what a parable is. He's, he's giving, he's giving a, a, spirit, a physical something to convey a spiritual truth. Now, here's one of the things that's very important um, to understand about parables and perhaps never more important than the two parables we're going to talk about tonight. And concerning the parables, there's always just one great truth in the parable. The parable, the parable is, not, is not the book of Romans. It's not the Holy Spirit through Paul breaking down doctrine and theology in some very, like, you know, microscopic level. That's not what Jesus is doing in a parable. He just wants to communicate one point in order to make that point clear. The reason that that's important to understand, especially with the parable of the ten virgins, is if you start to give significant meaning to every single detail in the parable, then you're going to, we're going to chase our tails, and we're probably going to end up majoring in a minor and minoring in the major and, and all confused about what the parable, walk away from the parable of the ten virgins and say, I don't have the slightest idea what it means because we gave meaning to everything. The parable is intended to communicate one great truth. And there's a lot to the parable and parables in general, but a lot of it is just to put kind of a, a context, a physical context, a description. It sets the stage for advancing the truth, but, and, but it's merely to accent the single great point and not to give meaning to um, you know, the flowers that are up on the stage. And, and so, very important to understand that if we walk away from these parables knowing the one great truth that's being communicated, then we know we're on safe ground. If we start to, you know, give a, uh, undue meaning to what's just providing context, then we're going to, uh, again, get lost in our heads related to uh, the parables. So the parable of the ten virgins, chapter 25, Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, it's important to understand that uh, here you've got ten virgins. Each of them have a lamp, we're told here in verse 1. Five of them in verse 2 were wise. Five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them. So 
uh, kind of silly to have a lamp and a wick but no oil. <clears throat> so those were the foolish five. And then, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, and while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and they, uh, and they uh, slept. And so uh, no blame here given to the fact that they were sleeping at all. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And then all those virgins, all ten of them, they arose, they trimmed their lamps, and uh, went to then now light them. And the foolish said to the wise, uh, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and for you, but go rather to those who sell and buy uh, some oil for yourselves. And so five of the virgins were prepared, and five uh, were unprepared for the coming of uh, the, the uh, bridegroom. Now, here it's important to realize that uh, this division here, this separation uh, between uh, here, the, no, the bridegroom is going to come, and then the coming of the bridegroom, it is the, uh, Jesus uh, in, in his first coming, uh, you know, he came and he purchased his bride and so forth. There's this long block of time that occurs uh, between his second coming that we're in the middle of uh, right now, but he promised that he is going to come and, uh, and, and return, and uh, five were ready for that return, and five of them weren't uh, ready for that return. And so when they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready, that's significant. They were prepared. This is in a, a, a parable that is encouraging us and exhorting us to being ready for Jesus' return. Those who were ready, they went in uh, with him to the wedding, and then the door was shut, talking about the rapture of the church. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he, uh, represented by Jesus here, the, the groom coming for his bride, he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And the door was not opened up to them. And Jesus is a very clear point of the parable. Watch, therefore, for you do not know whether you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so, again, the exhortation to be watching and waiting for Jesus' return. Five were and five weren't. And so, we ask ourselves in our own hearts, am I watching and waiting for uh, the Lord's return, for the groom's return? Five were and five were not. Well, how is a person uh, supposed to be ready? How does a person prepare themselves for uh, the return of Jesus, for the rapture of the church? Number one, uh, simply by being saved. And uh, so, this, you know, at the time of the rapture, here you've got five there, so to speak, there uh, wanting to buy oil from the other. You can't share a relationship with God. There are no uh, grandchildren in the body of Christ. There are only children. You've got to have your own relationship with God, as the old saying goes. And so, uh, we have to have be born again ourselves. We have to have trusted in Christ for our salvation and uh, believing in Him and making ourselves a part uh, of the body of Christ. So number one necessity is to, in preparation in our lives is to be born again. And then uh, the second preparation is to be watching for His return, to rapture the church. 
into heaven to be taken up to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb for the seven years of the tribulation period. And in this imagery that Jesus is giving here, you know, it's very uh, strongly uh, related to how it is that they conducted marriages in those days, but the truth of all of it, it, it translates into our age. And the idea is this, there's something seriously wrong with a bride uh, who is indifferent uh, to the coming and the approach of her bridegroom on her wedding day. Um, if I showed up and I was officiating a wedding and I showed up and the bride couldn't care less whether the groom showed up or not, uh, I'd say sayonara, and I don't even know Japanese. Is that Japanese? So there is no way. I would look and say there is something wrong in a relationship. I mean really desperately wrong if a bride on her wedding day is not on tiptoes for uh, the coming of her groom in order to be married. And in the same way, Jesus is communicating that there is something terribly, terribly wrong in the heart of a Christian, someone who says they constitute the bride of Christ and has no excitement or anticipation concerning the coming of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And, and John, when he, as he writes in the book of Revelation to the end of the book, both the Spirit and the bride say, Lord, come quickly. The Holy Spirit is excited within the body of Christ, within us as Christians, producing an excitement for the coming of Jesus to take his church. And so both the Holy Spirit and the bride say, come uh, quickly, even, you know, even so come quickly. So uh, this should be characteristic of that. Can you imagine now as we, as we talk about this, and I don't know how many Christians you know are excited about the rapture. Now, you know, most of the Christians that I run into attend here, and I do run into other Christians too that, you know, you talk about the things of the Lord or, or something like that or something about, you know, the Lord coming back or something, and they'll get excited, but sometimes they just look at you cross-eyed. You know, like, what in the world are you talking about? You know, or, yeah, yeah, you know, um, I've got to eat and drink and marry and give in marriage a, a little bit yet. But you think about on a wedding day, think about a bride who is not excited about marrying her husband. And not just what that says about her heart, but think about the insult that is to the groom. I mean, there's almost no deeper wound uh, that you could mete out upon a person than to do that. It's an absolute, complete insult. And in the same way, it's an absolute insult to who God is and who our groom is for the body of Christ right down to every single Christian in the world not to be watching and waiting and excited for the day that Jesus is going to come and take us to himself having, and into the glory of heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think about how many Christians are completely indifferent to all of this, and it's important that we not uh, be that way. So again, it searches us. It, it looks at us, and, and where that is a part of our Christian life, we say, yes, that's it. I can't wait to... Uh, get out of here, but not just to get out of here, but to see him face to face, no longer through a glass darkly. And, uh, 
and, and, and then if it isn't true, then to realize, man, I wouldn't want to marry a wife like that or I wouldn't want to marry a groom that if he was in that kind of a condition and to say, wow, I never realized that God would look at that related to my life as well and then to change my heart in any way uh, that might be needed for all of that to uh, get turned around. So the importance of being prepared uh, for Jesus' return, it shouldn't catch us uh, by surprise. We uh, are to be ready and uh, found watching and waiting uh, when he does uh, return. For the kingdom of God, and here's the second uh, parable, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man uh, traveling to a far country. The man represents Jesus. The far country is heaven. Following Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection, he ascended into heaven, giving the promise that he would one day return. This is the whole setting of the parable. And so here is this man traveling to a far country, and he calls his own servants to him. And so these are servants. They're in a relationship uh, with him. And he delivered his goods to them. So what he gives them here is he's going to give them a stewardship, and he's going to give them five talents and two talents and one talent. And, um, but that was never theirs. That was something that belonged to the master, and it was a gift given uh, to them. So he gives his good to them. To one, he gives five talents. Uh, and don't think about talent and the ability to... Listen, I sat through a lot of Miss America contests when I was a kid. I had two younger sisters, and my stepdad would say to both of them, that could be you right there if you just... And he's trying to get... Why don't you take some tap, and why don't you learn to sing? He's trying to light a fire under the side of her, you know. And then the older brothers that we were, yeah, right, she's in this America. I, like, I'm going to be the president of the United States, you know. But we loved each other. I was a nice home and all. But it isn't talking about some kind of a talent. A talent in those days was a sum of money, and it was a very significant sum of money. If the talent here that's spoken of is gold, it's the, is the equivalent of 20 years' uh, wages. So when here this amount of money is given to uh, each of these servants, it's a very uh, significant thing that is being given to them. Basically, it's kind of like uh, somebody coming, a servant saying, uh, a master saying to a servant, listen, I'm going to be gone for a long time, and uh, I, I want to stake you in your business. I want to stake you in life. I want to give you a head start. I want to give you what you need to make something of yourself. It's a, treme it's a tremendous thing what um, the master is doing, not only in the gift that he's giving, but in what the gift represents in terms of what he believes is possible uh, related to the person. So this is tr a tremendous thing that he's doing. To one he gives five talents, to another he gave two, to another he gave one, to each according to his own ability. Now this is interesting to realize because he doesn't give them all five, he doesn't give them all two, he doesn't give them all one. And here is a master who knows his servants. Uh, he knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. He knows who he can expect more out of uh, than the other person. And uh, not by virtue of laziness or a lack of a work ethic or anything like that, just by virtue of the gene pool. There are certain people who can just get a lot more done than another person because they're just more gifted than we are, more talented than we are, and so forth. And so God looks at us, and He's our Creator, and he knows us inside and out. And so he gives us uh, gifting uh, 
from him. He gives us a stewardship in accordance with what he knows. And what, why this is important to understand is it's important for us in the course of our, and he's get, where he's getting to here is Christian service, is Christians. In our service to the Lord, it's important that we do not compare ourselves among ourselves, as Paul said to the Corinthians, because it's not wise. Because if God has given you two talents or one talents in, in terms of a, a stewardship that you're going to be accountable for, and you look at someone who's been given a, a five talents, then you're going to feel like nothing. You're going to feel like what my friend Lee Shaw says, you're going to feel like dirt under the toenail of the body of Christ. Who am I? I mean, I'm not making a difference at all. Listen, if all of us compared ourselves to Chuck Smith, who in the world would ever get behind a lectern or teach the Word of God? But everyone's called to do what they do, and they're called with a certain sphere of influence, no matter what it is that we're doing uh, for the kingdom of, of God. And then the other thing that's important is if God gives you five talents, you can become a slacker if you put your focus on someone he's given two to or one to, not realizing you're going to be held to a higher standard. And so this is all very, very individually, as Paul wrote to the individual, as Paul wrote to the church at uh, Corinth, the Holy Spirit gives individually as He wills in terms of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the calling that is uh, upon our lives. And so He gives this, uh, these uh, talents, and then He immediately went on His uh, uh, journey, and so this speaks of His ascension uh, in, uh, into heaven, and so uh, he heads off. And here the talent just, uh, Jesus is, in, I mean, the, the parable Jesus is instructing concerning that here not only are we to be watching and waiting for Jesus' return, but we are also to be working while we are watching and waiting. That's the point. A lot of people watch, can be watching and waiting and then not do anything. Uh, you know, they talk about the person who's so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Um, I've never met such a person. I don't think you can be any earthly good unless you're heavenly-minded, so but I guess they exist out there. But the idea isn't that we as Christians say, all right, I know what the whole end-time scenario is going to be, and I know what's going to happen over there in the Middle East and this and that and the plagues and everything, and now I'm just watching and waiting, and God come and hammer them like crazy, you know, and we're just waiting uh, for the end of things. That's not, how, that's not how we're to operate as Christians. That shouldn't be our heart anyway. But we're also watching and waiting, but also to be working. And each and every one of us has a place in God's plan for the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. And for someone, it may be to be a missionary. For someone else, it may be to be a pastor. For someone else, it may be to be to whatever, to be a grandmother, to uh, influence grandchildren or influence a family or whatever it might be. It's not everything happening within, you know, what is so, you know, obviously a part of a church or something like that. But each of us, wherever God has put us, there's that recognition, I've been placed here by God, and God has gifted me to be an influence in this situation. I have his peace that this is where he wants me to be and what it is that I'm supposed to be uh, doing, and then to be busy about that, being an influence for the kingdom of God uh, in, uh, in, that, uh, in that 
uh, place. And so uh, then he who had received the five talents, he went out and he traded with them. He put his, the gift that God had given to him and all and his life, and he put it into the circulation of everything else that was happening uh, on planet Earth. And so he took what had been given to him and, uh, and put it into that circulation, and he made another five talents. The kingdom of God was advanced through uh, his life. And likewise, he who had received two he did the same, and he gathered two more also. Uh, but he who received one, he went and he dug in the ground and he hid his Lord's money, that one piece of, uh, uh, that one talent, and, uh, and, and buried it. And after a long time, this is 2,000 years and counting, ladies and gentlemen, the Lord of those servants came, and then he settled accounts with them. And so he who had received the five talents came, and he brought five talents uh, and he brought five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. And so I took this money, and I realized that this was about the advancement. It was yours. It belonged to you. This was about the advancement of what you have done on the earth, and you've now entrusted to uh, us in the power of the Holy Spirit. I put what you gave me into circulation, five more. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he who had received two talents, he came and he said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents, and look, I've gained two more talents beside them. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, and I make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And no life, no Christian life, who does not ultimately hear that well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, uh, no Christian who does not hear that ultimately from the lips of Christ can ever consider the life that they have lived as being, uh, you know, uh, the way that it should have been lived or uh, for their, them to consider that their spiritual life was successful. Everything about the Christian life is going to be determined in that moment when each and every one of us stand before the Lord, and we're going to do that individually at what's called the Bema Seat of Christ. Paul writes about it in his uh, second letter to the church at Corinth. It's not the white throne judgment where people are judged for their sin and their rejection of Christ. No Christian will stand there. But there is a Bema Seat. It's called a reward seat of Christ that each of us will stand there. And it won't be like a group picture or, you know, the pastoral staff is going to be all there together or all of us in our home fellowship there together. Individually, we're going to give an accounting to God for our faithfulness to the calling that He placed upon our life and the gifting that He gave to us to be influential uh, for Him. And all that is going to matter when one day we see Him, we look in His eyes, all that's going to be matter, matter, the only thing that's going to determine the success of our Christian life uh, in terms of being an influence will be whether we hear that well done or we don't hear that well done. And so the importance of uh, living uh, in, in such a way as to hear that and to realize that not only is it something that's important for us, but what a blessing it is for to give Jesus the opportunity to be able to say that uh, to us. And he's given us everything that we need for that 
uh, that to happen. And then when he, and here's a, in contrast to the faithfulness of the first two, then he who had received the one talent, he came and he said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and scattering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, here's your one talent uh, back again. So here's a guy that's full of excuses for why uh, he didn't put his talent and who he was and the gifting and calling that God had on his life into the mix of things, and, uh, and he's full of excuses. And the old saying is, Any, anybody that's good at excuses is t rarely good for anything else. And that's the truth. And so this, he's full of excuses. And it's interesting to me as I read this, he's almost... Um, falling back on the sovereignty of God as an excuse. Listen, you're, you're the one, you know, you, uh, you reap where you haven't sown. You gather where you haven't scattered seed. God, you're going to do whatever you're going to do. And that's a temptation, isn't it? Ah, God's going to save whoever he's going to save, and he's going to get his work done, and the whole plan's going to happen. It doesn't matter whether I'm a part of it or not. And, and uh, so... Uh, he knows who he's going to do this with and who he's going to do that with and so forth. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. His sovereignty ultimately is, is going to overrule everything. And so he kind of hides behind uh, this excuse here. But Jesus isn't in a mood for excuses. And uh, his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. Wow. Wow. Now, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. And he calls him wicked. Now, the lazy part I get, the wicked part, that gets me thinking a little bit. We kind of reserve the term wicked for like notorious wrongdoing, you know, people that are really, really bad. And here he is, he calls this guy wicked. And what's he talking about? It is a wicked thing for any Christian to hear the gospel and to be born again because so many people through thousands of years of history were faithful to God's call upon their life to advance that gospel and to advance that kingdom so that we might hear that gospel and become a part of that kingdom. And any person who receives that blessing, it's such great expense not only to God to provide it, but to human beings to advance it and then to not advance it themselves and to sit on it. And the advancement of the kingdom of God as it relates to their life stops at that point. God looks at that from the vantage point of heaven, and he says, that's pure wickedness. That is not only a lazy servant, that is a wicked servant. I don't know why. There's a lot of things in the Christian life that I have to work kind of really hard at in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then there's other things that come a little bit easier for me. And then how that all works out in each of our lives as Christians, it's a little different for each one of us. But somehow, when I became a Christian and began to hear the Word of God and God began to, 
And it was like, a, it was like bombs bursting in air when I sat down in a room and someone was teaching the Bible and I could understand it, and it was like a revelation to me that the Bible was intended to be understood. And, of course, it took the Holy Spirit coming into my life, you know, for that uh, to happen. But for some reason, I just had this connection with the body of Christ all the way going back and to realize, even in my own life, the person that was teaching up there, the person who taught them, the person who did this, the person who did that, and generations back, and to realize I am a debtor to so many people to become a Christian and to uh, understand the Word of God, I've, I've, to me, it's like I couldn't live with myself if I wasn't then stepping up to take my part in my little time in history uh, to do what so many others had done for me. And it's important to, uh, again, allow that to build us up and, and uh, affirm that where it is in our lives and where it doesn't exist at all uh, to uh, to look hard at it, you wicked and lazy servant. Let me, let me just mention this before I forget it, and I don't uh, want to forget it. There is no such thing in terms of the Bible's definition of uh, a Christian life. There is no such thing as a serviceless Christianity. It doesn't exist. Again, now we're talking about um, Christianity is just defined by the culture and dumbed down into this weak thing where the old gag is, is that uh, from decades ago is that the church has become like a football game where you've got 80,000 people in the stands watching, you know, 22 people do whatever on the field. I don't know how many are on a side in football. I like watching it, but I don't like numbers, so I never counted them. Um, but uh, that, that is completely different from what God uh, wants. It isn't a spectator uh, sport. So there's this thing where there, in each of our lives there has to be that place where we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, uh, what is it that you have called me to do for your glory? And, uh, and what have you gifted me to do? And that, that can be in things that people would look at and say that's purely secular. It can even be in an occupation that is highly lucrative. But the person that's doing it is saying, I'm not here because of the money. I'm not here because of the power or the reputation, who I get to rub shoulders with. I'm here because God put me here, and this is where I'm supposed to be. And wherever that might be, but the importance of seeking God related to that and saying, I am in this place for His glory. Wasn't it nice when we were, I was watching uh, some of the Olympics and all, and so many of the Olympic athletes just gave praise to the Lord, you know, for the medal and what they'd been able to do and all of that, and it wasn't like they were kind of, you know, trying to shoehorn Jesus in, you know, no matter what. It's just so natural coming out of their life, and they recognized, I am an Olympic athlete because that's what God has called me to do for His glory and to advance His kingdom at this time in my life. And, and that's the way it is really for all of us. But it is so important because there are so many Christians, and I don't know what the percentage is, but if there's one, it's too many, who don't do anything to advance the kingdom of God and settle into that 
is something that's acceptable, and it isn't acceptable. It's acceptable, acceptable in American Christianity, cultural Christianity, but it is not in terms of biblical Christianity. And one of the things that I just, you know, uh, kind of get on a little bit about in terms of churches today is uh, perfectly characterized by a conversation uh, a, a man had with a friend of mine who was also a pastor, and he finished preaching one Sunday morning, and he came to the back door, and he was standing there, and people were, uh, you know, saying goodbye and talking and all, and one guy came up to him, and he said, I just came here to see what you had to offer. And my friend looked him right in the eye and said, what do you have to offer? But I mean, very few people let those words come out of their mouth. I just came to see what you, could, you had to offer, and it's just shopping. Where can I go that I can give the very least and get the very most? And they look at, they look at church as uh, Amazon Prime. Where can I get at the cheapest price? It costs me, costs me the very least to get the very most. That's not the way the body of Christ works, and it's not the way a local church works. It functions because everyone takes their place. And if you don't know what your place is, it's great to just volunteer, meet a need, you know. If, if you feel like, hey, I'm supposed to be doing something, you know, in the church that I'm attending and all, and, uh, you know, uh, find out about a need with our ministry connection uh, here at the church and get going, and, and, uh, and the Lord will be faithful to direct you there. But nobody wants to be in this place, you wicked and, servant, uh, wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I haven't sown. You knew I could make something out of nothing, so not, why, not put the, why not put the one talent into circulation? Now, this isn't about... This is, if, if you believed about me what you're saying you believed about me, you wouldn't have buried it. You would have put it in circulation like everyone else and gather where I have not scattered seed. And so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. I mean, at least you'd get like, what is it, 0.414%, I don't know, you know, today. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest and therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. And for to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken uh, away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be uh, weeping and gnashing uh, of uh, teeth. Uh, and so the uh, closing here that he gives the end of the unfaithful uh, servant. Now, some people believe that this isn't a true disciple, that this is a hypocrite that, that is being cast into judgment and so forth. And, uh, and, and, but some uh, others look at this and say, well, wait a second, he's a servant of the master, and he was given a stewardship. Only, only servants were given a stewardship, and, and our, servant doesn't save, our service doesn't save us here. I like what Warren Wiersbe says related to this. He said, some feel that this unprofitable servant was not a true believer. But it seems that he was a true servant, even though he proved to be unprofitable. The outer darkness of Matthew 25, 30 need not refer to hell, even though it is often the case in the Gospels. It's dangerous to build theology on parables, for parables illustrate truth in vivid ways. The man was dealt with by the Lord. He lost his opportunity for service, and he gained no praise or reward. To me, Warren Wiersbe writes, that is outer darkness. 
than Bill McDonald, who I respect as much as is Warren Wiersbe, he wrote, the unprofitable servant was cast out, excluded from the kingdom. He shared the anguished fate of the wicked. It was not his failure to invest the talent that condemned him. Rather, his lack of good work showed uh, that he lacked saving faith so that he was unsaved. Uh, Harry Ironside uh, says that this cast into outer darkness is an oriental uh, expression for the disfavor of the master. So it doesn't mean really that it was eternal punishment here, but that it was just a graphic way of, of a king expressing uh, their displeasure. You can make up your own mind. And uh, candidly, I'm not sure what it means. It's, it is a parable, so I am careful about you know, taking, I understand what the main message is here, to be working, found working when the Lord uh, returns. So I'm hesitant to press everything else uh, too hard uh, at all, especially anything that would bring into question a doctrine that's so clear in the Scriptures as uh, salvation based upon faith and not upon works. But whatever this is, I don't want anything about, <laughs> know anything about it. I don't want any part of it. It's enough. And so all we have to do is be faithful, and then we don't uh, have to worry about it at all. Now we close with this in verse 31, and here's the parable. Uh, uh, Jesus speaking not in parable of a coming judgment at the time of his second coming. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels will come with him, we will come with him as well at his second coming. And then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So his second coming is going to be very different from his first coming. Came in obscurity, came quietly. Second coming, going to be coming with the angels with him. We will be uh, accompanying him as well, Jude says and the book of Revelation. He'll sit on uh, the throne of his glory. At his second coming, he's coming to establish a kingdom. It's known as the kingdom, millennial kingdom, or the thousand-year reign of Christ. All of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other as a shepherd uh, divides his sheep uh, from the goats talks about this judgment of the nations that's going to occur at Jesus' second coming. The word nations there uh, probably means, and more than probably, uh, pretty strongly means that, uh, referring to the Gentile uh, nations here. And it's not talking about God. Jesus said his second coming and saying, okay, I'm going to judge China now, and I'm going to judge Poland now, and I'm going to judge Germany now. It's talking about judging people individually. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, each one is going to stand before him at, at this particular uh, uh, judgment here. And so uh, when he comes to, to establish his, his, uh, his, his uh, millennial kingdom, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, the side of favor, the goats he will set on the left. And then uh, the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, uh, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will say to him and answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and uh, give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, 
Inasmuch as you did it to uh, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so uh, the, Jesus will personally divide uh, the, the, uh, uh, this group of people at that, that time of his, his second coming. And, and so uh, this judgment, this, this throne speaks of the fact that he is coming to establish a kingdom, but it also speaks of the fact that he is, he is going to uh, judge. And before that main, uh, his reign at his second coming begins, this great judgment uh, occurs where a separation between the sheep and the goats is uh, going uh, to occur. The people that are being judged here are uh, not Christians and, and so forth. These people are those who have survived the great tribulation period. They are alive on the world, in the world, at Jesus' second coming, despite all of the seals and the trumpets and the bull judgments and so forth. People will survive uh, uh, some portion of them, uh, the great tribulation period. And so this is, again, not the white throne judgment that's described in Revelation 21 where people are judged related to what they did with Christ. Um, that occurs at, uh, at the end of the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This judgment occurs at the beginning of uh, uh, the reign. And so Jesus is going to personally divide them, we see here, into two groups, two groups alone. And as each individual is brought before him, he will declare whether they are to be numbered among the sheep at his right hand or uh, the goats at his left hand. Again, the right hand, the sheep, that's the hand of favor. Left hand, the goats, the, the hand of, of disfavor. Jesus, in his dealing with the sheep there, uh, on his right hand, he declared uh, to the sheep, those at his right hand, declares them to be blessed of the Father and the reasons for the blessing. You fed and you drank and, you, and he was a stranger and he was naked and he was sick and he was in prison and they visited and so forth. And they're confused at the question, of course, because when did we have the privilege of being able uh, to do this uh, for you? Jesus was not, is not physically present during the tribulation uh, period. And because he'll have been in heaven. So they don't understand how they could have done all these things for him. He responds there uh, in, uh, in verse uh, 40, and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it uh, to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus is not teaching here that, salva that salvation is on the basis of good works or uh, treating other people well or feeding the poor or visiting people who are lonely or the golden rule or anything like that. That's a very common interpretation of this passage, and it, it's nothing of, of uh, uh, the sort. And so this is a judgment of those who have survived the great tribulation to determine who will enter then into the kingdom age, into the thousand-year reign of Christ. And in this passage, Jesus' brethren almost certainly, at least in my mind, refers to the Jews. And following the abomination that causes desolation during the tribulation period, the Jews will realize that the Antichrist has deceived them, and the Antichrist will then unleash a, a demonic persecution against them. These Jews will then flee for their lives, 
and they will then heed the preaching of the 144,000 calling uh, male virgin Jews to, from their nations, calling them, uh, tribes of their nation, calling them to put their faith in Jesus. They'll listen to the two witnesses, Elijah and perhaps uh, Moses. They'll trust in Jesus as their promised Messiah or Savior. At least a good number of them will. But because of the fact that they become Christians, they won't be able to buy or sell during the tribulation period because they won't uh, take the mark. So they're going to be in a very, very vulnerable position. And we see the vulnerability in the language that Jesus uses here. Hungry, uh, thirsty, a stranger, uh, naked, sick, imprisoned. This is the vulnerability that the Jews are going to experience during the tribulation period uh, following the abomination that causes desolation. But apparently... Gentile Christians, those who are tribulation saints, they become Christians after the rapture, during the tribulation period. They find themselves in a very, very similar plight. They will come to the aid of these, their Jewish brethren, and they will help them then to survive the tribulation period. And these are uh, the sheep. Other Gentiles will take the mark of the beast. They will join the Antichrist in his persecution against uh, the Jews. These are uh, the goats. And so this is what he's describing here. And he goes on now uh, to speak uh, to the goats. And he, verse 41, then he will say to those who are on his left hand, depart from me and uh, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me, and naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and we did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Verily, verily, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it, uh, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. It appears that this judgment, uh, separation between uh, the sheep and the goats at the end of the age at Jesus' second coming will cover a period of about 45 days. Daniel speaks of it in Daniel 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, that is, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days until Jesus' second coming. Blessed, Daniel writes, is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. In other words, they survive this judgment, this examination to then go into uh, the kingdom uh, age. And it will be... Uh, you, you wonder how many people are going to survive the tribulation period of the billions of people that inhabit uh, the earth, probably even after the rapture of the church. Well, it'll be uh, enough people that it will re require Jesus 45 days uh, to do this separation and this judgment. And so it'll be Jewish and Gentile Christians who will uh, survive the tribulation that will then enter into the kingdom of uh, age and in a unglorified uh, state, and uh, in that kingdom age, they'll give birth to children and so forth and repopulate the earth, and because no unsaved person is going to enter into the kingdom age of Messiah. 
and all uh, of the other Christians who have died throughout history or persecutions uh, uh, of the tribulation period, and they've died as a result of their faith in Christ during the tribulation. Every Christian will, by this point, have received their glorified body. And we know from Jesus' teaching that believers with glorified bodies will not be uh, reproducing. There is no marriage uh, uh, for uh, us after this uh, life, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 22. So it is this other group now that survives the tribulation uh, and, and constitute the sheep that will then move into the kingdom age in this uh, particular way. Then Jesus uh, uh, speaks to those on his left hand and declares them to be cursed, and they're cast uh, out uh, in t- uh, into uh, judgment. And, uh, and there is no hope for anyone that has taken the mark of the beast at that particular point in time. And so we come to the end of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And uh, tremendous lessons that are in here. We looked at them. I've kept you long. Um, it doesn't, sometimes it helps to at least know that I noticed. And, uh, but uh, very, very weighty stuff. Very, very weighty stuff. So important. Are we watching? Are we waiting? Do we have the heart and the mind of the bride? And are we working? And would we be found faithful if Jesus were to return tonight? And if that isn't the case, then we're going to close the service up here in just a moment. But it's a very nice night out there in the Central Valley, isn't it? And to maybe go home and find a seat in a quiet room in the house or just to go take a nice long walk and get all of that settled in the light of Jesus' teaching here in the Word of God. This should be one of the most exciting events in our life, and Jesus wants it to be so, and we determine whether it will be the case, and we can make that choice tonight. Let's make the right choice if in any of our hearts such a thing needs to occur. Let's stand together and, uh, and close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for what you have recorded here, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and just the strength of it. And I'm still just hung up on that word wicked and how true the assessment is, but Lord, just help us to view this life and this world all around us in this Christian life with your eyes, Lord, and not with the eyes of the culture or of the world or even what has passed for acceptable Christianity in the past, but will not allow us to hear one day that well done. And Lord, I pray for each person that is perhaps hearing for the very first time that they have a ministry, that they've been given a talent, that they have a responsibility, Lord, that that you are even coming back and they're to be watching and waiting. And I pray that you just brood upon all of these truths in their heart and you give it just the right place that produces Christ-likeness within us in um, a dynamic Christian life and effective influence for the kingdom of God as we are waiting, Lord, for the rapture of the church. Again, I thank you and we thank you for the strength and the power, the majesty, Lord, that is found 
in this passage, and Lord, for the privilege of being able to be called to such a life and to live such a life. We bless you for the privilege, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel, would you close us?